I'm a problem solver. I don't easily take no for an answer. So when I was unhappy with what was being provided to me through my school district and through my experience with my children, and I continued to seek alternatives, it was through that experience that led me to be able to help my own children and to obtain for them the free and appropriate education that they were entitled to. I'm Tracy Spencer Walsh, and this is the It's Special podcast, a podcast for you to overhear my conversations with top professionals in the world of special needs and law and civil rights. We are curating information about special children's rights and distilling it into bite-sized pieces for all to enjoy. Today we have Jody Liston. I'm so excited that she's here today. Jody is an educational consultant extraordinaire. And Jody, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got into educational consulting? Sure. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you asking me to do this to you. And of course, I'm thrilled to be seeing you because we haven't gotten to see each other in a while. Me too. So thank you for having me. So interestingly, I started as many people who come into this business. I think that you and I would agree. Many people come into it honestly. And so through some challenges that I faced many years ago without dating myself too much, many years ago when my older children were quite young, as young as you know, two and three years old, and I saw they were struggling in as young as preschool and sought help for them, I quickly discovered that what was being shared with me in terms of what was available for my own children wasn't always accurate. And uh, I think I just am of the nature that I'm a problem solver. I don't easily take no for an answer. So when I was unhappy with what was being provided to me through my school district and through my experience with my children, and I continued to seek alternatives, it was through that experience that led me to be able to help my own children and to obtain for them the free and appropriate education that they were entitled to. What happened over time was that other families said, how did you do that? How did you get this for your daughter or this for your son? And then ultimately, fast forward, I myself worked with an attorney for my children who said, you're really good at this. Why don't you come and work with me? And so I worked, actually volunteered at a law firm where I did all of the case law research. I attended all of the CSE, PPT, IEP, 504 meetings for that attorney, taking all of the notes and being fully prepared and then coming back and presenting the case to her. And after about, am I going to say three or four years, she said to me, you're really good at this and you should go and do this on your own. And I told her she was crazy. I said, nobody is ever going to pay me to do this. Nobody would, would ever offer me money. And, you know, this is great. I help a lot of families and people can relate to me and I can relate to, you know, other moms. And and she said, I said, are you firing me? You can't fire me. You don't even pay me. And she said, go, I'm doing you a favor. And so I went out on my own and I started a small advocacy firm 
which has now grown over many, many years into the practice that I have today, which is Harris, Kramer, and Liston with a full continuum into college and prep. So Liston Education Group as a whole, working with families from the least traditional families to the most traditional families and the entire continuum in between over, I guess it's been taken me nearly 30 years at this point to get to this point and love my practice, love all the consultants in my practice and truly blessed and happy to be working with so many families who are seeking assistance in so many different ways. So it's a little bit. (laughs) I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing because there is a big need. And I, when I speak with families, when families call me to see if I can help them, sometimes they're at a place where they're not really sure where their child should be going to school. They know that where their child is is not working. They right. know that much, but they don't know what the next step is. And I always say, I am not an educational consultant, and I would happily deliver them into your hands because that's what you do. You know all of the programs, the ins and the outs, and you get to know the family and the student, and and you match them with a program that is really going to work for for the child. Now, when people call me, I can say, well, these are the schools I know about, sure. but I don't know your child. Let me tell you, once you find the right place, how I can help you, but you're not ready for me yet. Right. You know, you need to talk with Jody because she can help identify the program. And before I kick this ball back to you, one of the things that I heard you say when you were talking about your journey in becoming an educational consultant was when you were noticing that things weren't working for your children, I thought you were going to say, but I trusted them because they were the experts. Instead, I heard, I'm a problem solver, and I decided I was going to solve the problem. But many, many parents, as you know, Jody, mm-hmm. do trust the system and perhaps longer than... I don't want to say that they should. I think oftentimes parents don't realize that there is that there are different answers that they can get and really need to trust that inner voice that when when it doesn't feel right, it ain't right for my kid. An old kind of Bronx expression I'm going to use. <laughs> so can you speak to that at all? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I did have that experience where I think I did trust for some time. And the bridge would be, right, my saying, I'm a problem solver, and it didn't sit right with me. And so when when personnel who may have been well-intentioned try to fit me and my situation and my children into a box that didn't feel right to me. I sought alternatives. And I think that I would absolutely agree with you. I think as a mother, right, if I switch and I go into my mother hat, I think as a mother and any mother perhaps listening would say that why why would you believe that your school district, that your teacher, we're taught, I think, ourselves to, to we're taught to believe that 
They're there to help our, our children. They're there to guide our children. They're there to educate our children. Why would they not be providing everything they possibly could, the school district, to our children? And so I do think that we trust perhaps too long. And I think I, too, did that until I didn't <laughs> any longer. And absolutely, I you know, I had to seek help from educational attorney and, you know, consultants myself in order to be able to resolve that, resolve those issues and find what was going to be the right alternative solution, the right, and I hesitate anymore to say the word, I always say the word fit, but I think that the word I've come to use is match. How do we best find the right match where a child can thrive? And that may mean something different for each and every child. And I think when families are in conversation with their school district, I think there is a bandwidth which within a school district can be of assistance. And sometimes for a particular situation, a particular child, that's fine. And it is adequate services. And there are many other times where it simply is not, not perhaps because they're not trying, perhaps they just don't have the level of service that a particular child is in need of. And I think that oftentimes it's been my experience anyway that a school district can take a specific situation that is unique and try to put it into that box within which this is what we can provide. And so this is what we provide to everyone. And we know that every child is unique. And so that formula just doesn't work. And I'm not accustomed to speaking on behalf of school districts, <laughs> but I, I just want to throw a caveat sure. in there. This is certainly, there are educators out there are, are so many wonderful people, educators, administrators. There's just, I, and I, I was an educator in an upper school, and I was also an administrator. I was a dean of students in an all-girls private school. So not in a public environment, but I have sat on both sides of the table. And I think a lot of the time is, you know, I, and I want to say this on behalf of, of school teachers mm -hmm. and administrators, that I think sometimes not everybody is actually aware of the level of services that can be provided to students. And sometimes there's a lack of knowledge of, of what can be made available to students. And I think you're right that oftentimes there's this perception among, among educators that, okay, we have this menu of options. Mm -hmm. And if what a parent is seeking on behalf of their child is not on the menu of options that they have been taught or instructed mm -hmm. is the menu of options, mm -hmm. that's where a lot of the disconnect happens and where children fall through the cracks. Because under the, the federal statute, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, there is not supposed to be a set menu of options because every child is individual and every child's needs needs to who has a classifiable disability mm -hmm. needs to be planned accordingly. And that's 
that's sometimes a really tough thing for people to get their heads wrapped around, even even parents, that really my child would be entitled to that. Well, if it's appropriate and it's going to help your child learn and make progress, yes, perhaps that, that would be something that can and should be available to you. But anyway, so I want you to continue. Yeah, well, you know, and I've had, I have to say on the flip side, I have had instances where a family might come to me. In this case, let's say they're seeking services at the district level as opposed to seeking a program out of the district where through really collaborative conversation with, you know, the director of pupil personnel or, you know, a senior administrative person in, you know, the special education department, we have come to some incredible solutions working together, you know, very collaboratively. So I absolutely think that that can happen. I think families are sometimes surprised because they do hear, like most things, right, it's it's easy for people to talk about the bad, but they don't always talk about the good. And I'm sure you've had similar experiences where your collaboration with a district may, you know, may prove to a family, like, that they're able to really be reasonable and provide what a family is looking for. And I've had it both ways, where a district is absolutely open to having those conversations and really going above and beyond what you might expect coming in. And then had, I think we we may have shared some cases even, where it's it can be challenging and it's emotionally stressful and families are overwhelmed and exhausted. And, you know, we're asking them to trust us to get them through that process. There's fear and anxiety associated with it. It's certainly not an easy process to go through, you know, as um, as a parent, even when you're, you know, if you, you who, you know, an excellent attorney, one of my favorite attorneys, <laughs> as you know, but it can take time and it's... It's emotionally exhausting, I think, for families along the way as well. So, For sure it is. And it is in a place where families want to be. And I always say that it's a last resort. You know, it, it, litigation is a last resort. But thankfully, it is a resort. Mm. Thankfully, we have this very strong statute in this country, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, also known as the IDEA that really has some teeth. And it has been tremendously helpful for many students, not all students, and in many parts of this the country, and maybe even many parts of this state, it isn't it doesn't have as great a bite as in other places. Mm. And the reasons for that are many. But parents need to hear and and practitioners, you know, our the, our audience of People who are working with students mm-hmm. who have disabilities, you know, it's helpful for everybody to become more aware and more knowledgeable about what is out there for students. So just to give a little bit of background for people listening about how you and I have worked together, under the law, if a student is not being appropriately educated They're not getting that FAPE, that free appropriate public education, or at least the parent, that is the belief that the parent is operating under, and and that would be decided at a later date. 
parents may, and this is uh, also under case law, uh, United States Supreme Court law case law, parents may remove their child from public school and place them in a private school and seek funding from their school district for that private school program. And that's where you step in. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. Yes. And that's indeed, we've we've shared many cases with that respect. So we, as a practice, and myself as an individual, spend, well, perhaps more post-pre-pandemic and now just resuming post-pandemic, but traditionally would be spending at least I would say one week out of every month, if not a little bit more, of our time traveling the country, planes, trains, and automobiles, visiting schools, whether that's locally here to the tri-state area, day schools, boarding schools, schools for children with who learn differently, and then, of course, across the country, boarding schools, again, that may be appropriate at a variety of different levels hospitals, mental health facilities, alternative programming, diagnostic and treatment centers, medical assessment centers. So we're introducing ourselves, staying connected, not only through touring and and physically being in any program that we might be referring a client to, but staying connected to that client through the entire length of stay And while they may be placing them unilaterally, as you referred, throughout that entire length of stay, and then working directly with you to ensure that all relative information is provided to you and to the school district to strengthen the case for, in that case, which would be reimbursement for that private placement. During our time with the family, we spend an extraordinary amount of time getting to know the child, getting to, you know, we speak with teachers, we speak with psychologists, we speak with therapists. We want to understand a 360-degree view of that child, not simply a child on paper. And we want to try to, again, find the best match for how old is the child? What are the child's primary needs? And if they are, if they are not accessing and benefiting from their education, is it a social-emotional reason? Is it a combination of social-emotional and academic reasons? Is there a mental health reason and a learning disability? We need to understand how all of those things come together so that we can find an appropriate school that can meet all of those needs with the end result ultimately being perhaps a reintegration into the public school if at all if that's appropriate of course in the end but that's the hope yeah that's always the hope always mm-hmm. now why don't we talk a little bit about you know our students with mental health struggles you know we've talked about students with disabilities and let's talk about some of the needs that you see yeah. for our, I'd say mostly, I'm going to use the word adolescence with mental health struggles. And, and as a lead into this, I, I am going to preface this with saying that still in this country, in many of the courts, mental health is not understood. And the acting out behavior 
which I'm sure we'll go into here, the acting out behavior that we often see with students with mental health struggles is simply seen as bad behavior and a bad kid and an unruly child or bad parenting. All of these, it's myths, you know, that still have not been entirely debunked. And uh, I know that in my cases, I need an expert to really explain what's happening with this person who's having a mental health struggle, which is the reason we're seeing what some would say maladjusted behavior, which is one of the worst things that I see written down by sometimes the courts. But anyway, why don't you talk to us about that and your involvement with helping families with adolescents with those challenges? Yeah, sure. So I think there's a couple of different things happening. One would be that mental health struggles are secondary or the externalizing behaviors are secondary to the mental health struggle. So for some kids, if they're struggling with depression or anxiety, they may internalize and completely isolate. They may choose maladaptive skills. So they may smoke pot, they may use alcohol, they may have risky behaviors. Other kids may externalize. They may use some of those same maladaptive coping skills, but they're swearing at their parents, taking off, no one knows where they are. There is, it's not because parents are bad and it's not because kids are bad. There is something underlying with their depression, anxiety, or whatever that mental health crisis may be that they are having, trauma, perhaps an underlying mood disorder of some kind. There's something underlying that we need to know what that is, whether that's through a full and comprehensive psychoeducational evaluation so that we can see the social-emotional side and the academic and cognitive sides and how they fluidly come together whether that's a period of time where there's an assessment and diagnostic and some therapeutic intervention. We, because I am not the clinician, so we work with many clinicians and many short-term, two-week, three-week, short-term programs that can help us collect the data that can inform what is going on for that student And it starts to unravel what's really, you know, I think a lot of people use the peeling back the layers of the onion as a a metaphor here, but it it really does sit true is like what is at the core? Perhaps an apple is a little sweeter than an onion. So what is really at the core there? That is really, I think, a key point that we need to understand. And interestingly, when we speak with families and they They call us and we have a consultation with them and we're learning about, tell me a little bit about your child. Tell me what's going on. What led you to call me today? You know, I was likely not the first call you made. It's probably been months coming, right, before you called me. Interestingly, they all say, many families say, I don't want my son or daughter with other kids that they're going to learn 
bad behaviors from. I don't want my son or daughter with people who might be smoking pot or who might be drinking or are have ter- are terribly disrespectful to their parents. Although they've just described to me that that is exactly what they're likely quite bright, well educated from a, you know, our clients are are typically college preparatory clients. And if we're talking about adolescents here, right? I'm not talking about my third graders, but still these are typically families who are, you know, loving parents, even whether they're divorced or not divorced, but families who care deeply for their children, who want the best for their children, who are invested in their children's education, who are most, for the most part, involved in their children's lives. And, and I mean, I myself am one of those parents. Both of my children had significant struggles with mental health and with academics. And it wasn't because I'm a bad mother or I didn't seek solutions for them. But many families will say, make to that myth, right, that if they seek something alternative outside of their home, is their child going to be exposed to these children with these terrible conduct disorders and these, you know, terrible bad behaviors and the interesting thing is that those those types of, as we know, there are bad people in the world, those types of profiles, so they may be an adolescent who is struggling with a significant conduct disorder or a significant primary substance abuse use, those clients are not typically in the same program or the same types of programs that we're talking about as a whole or more generally for kids who are struggling with depression, anxiety, maybe they smoked some pot, maybe they dabbled in drinking, maybe they had risky behaviors. They are typically being referred to programs that are more appropriate for them. And certainly conduct disorders specifically would be an entirely different programming client. They would be rule outs for many, 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 many programs. In fact, most programs. So it's it's highly unlikely, but it is a I think it is a belief that many families have when they come in and have conversation and even want to be educated as to what's out there in an alternative for their child are very concerned that the same profile they describe to me is something that they fear their child will get somewhere else. So I want to circle back to something that you brought up about how oftentimes the students that you're helping are also bright students. Mm -hmm. Now, this is also something that we run up against with some school districts is, how could this child need special education services when his IQ is 132? Well, because he is still struggling with getting out of the house every day because of his depression and can't access his education. And therefore, this 132 IQ person is getting Ds and Fs in classes because he can't show up. So this is, yes, so even really, really bright people struggle and it interferes with their learning. Can you speak to that? Absolutely. And it's, we see this every day in our practice, 
every day, whether it's a solidly average IQ of 100, which is I tell parents often, I'm like, that's really, you know, there's nothing wrong with solidly average. It's it's great. And, you know, all the way through, to your point, 130, 140 IQ, which is right incredibly, you know, close to superior, I think. But if you're not functioning because of a mental health issue, you are not able to access your education. And while you're the attorney, (laughs) I think we would agree that having a social-emotional issue that impacts your ability to access your education does fall under the federal law in being able to receive an appropriate education. And I think parents don't always understand that. And it's, it's... I think it's it's incredible to me sometimes when I'm having those conversations, I have to say, you know, when we get to the level where if I'm attending a CSE meeting and we're having a conversation about that, that the person sitting across the table from me in in the district is arguing this with me, arguing this point with me. And it seems to me to be so logical. Like, yes, obviously we understand the student is incredibly bright. That's the point. They are not measuring up to their ability. And isn't that one of the barometers by which we're we're defining whether or not they need special education? Because clearly the ability exists, but they're not accessing it. Well, yes and no to that, because just to be clear for our listeners that School districts are not mandated to ensure that a child reaches their maximum potential. So the burden for us is is a bit higher. We really need to show that their, their ability to access their education is less than average. And I think average a lot of the time is a C. And I know that many people especially parents of in high-achieving families don't see C as average, but it is considered average in, in, many, in many jurisdictions. So, so we, while we all want our children to you know, maximally reach their potential, school districts don't have that mandate. They're only mandated to provide an appropriate education in light of the child's circumstances under the Andrew F. case, the most recent United States Supreme Court case on on that issue. But so it is important. But to your point, Jody, yes, if you have this really smart kid who isn't able to get to school or is leaving school or is, you know, is slipping, let's say here's a student who was, you know, straight A's and B's, and now they're CDs and Fs. Well, clearly, the, the, their struggles are interfering with their ability to learn. Yeah, and I think that was my point, really, when I said the barometer, right? It's the barometer for that child. If that child had historically always had Cs, even with 130 IQ, that speaks to a number of other different things, not just a mental health issue, right? We could We could have that discussion. But if you have a child who is quite bright and who had always historically done incredibly well, and then we do see that slipping, there is a measure there by which we could say something has clearly gone wrong. And is it a social-emotional issue versus a motivational 
issue. Mm. Those are very different things. Right. And sometimes uh, students' learning disabilities are not picked up until later, sometimes not until high school. And why is that? Well, because they are so intelligent, so bright. They've been compensating for a really, really, really long time. And now the work has become so much more complex that those compensation strategies are no longer working. And now the learning disability is revealing itself. And it's, it is really interesting when that happens. And then there's a whole lot of, well, for the school districts and the parents, well, he was always doing so well. And now all of a sudden, right. it's just that this particular student was just so incredibly intelligent and able to mask it on his or her own for such a long time and, and no longer can mask it. And, and when we talk to the social emotional pieces, you know, the, the world of social skills becomes so much more complex as, as we get older. So what might not be so complex to a primary or elementary school student, when they get to middle school, sometimes, you know, those, those relationships, those social interactions become so much more complex. And they're, there's, they're, there's a breakdown there that then really doesn't become as pronounced until they're then in high school. Would you agree? Do you see that? I absolutely agree. And it's heartbreaking, I think. I mean, the reality is, I think even for the for the strongest of us, and we've all gone through, right, those middle school, you and I, middle school girls, and certainly, right, you know, it's mean girls. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And if you have any type of social communication or a social pragmatic or social skill deficit, even a teeny tiny bit, you know, you might get eaten alive. And and it's hard anyway. It's a difficult time in your life. You know, you have like that whole awkward thing going on and you're kind of trying to figure out who you are. Your and body is changing. Yes, hormones and, you know, you hate your parents anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. I think those were the days where you said, my parents are so stupid, right? Then you get older and you say, wow, my parents actually may have known what they were talking about, but now you're so much older, you can't really have to go back and say, I'm so sorry. I know. My son is 24 now. I think he's finally circling back. I used to, when I was uh, an administrator and a teacher well, at, at the school that I used to work at, I used to say to the parents at a meeting that uh, that the aliens come and they will abduct all of your children. And somewhere around the age of 24, they'll be returned. (laughs) But just so you know, you will be living with an alien for a long time. It does feel that way. It absolutely does. But speaking of, you know, social skills, social pragmatics, and I think just the, the nature of adolescence, it can be brutal. The other thing, and right, it's sort of the elephant in the room, is how has the pandemic affected those social skills those social relationships, obviously with children having been remote, that made things so challenging and so difficult. They they weren't socializing. So I have many clients that thought the pandemic was the greatest thing ever because they didn't want to leave their rooms anyway. And then many, many clients where they were incredibly social and their life essentially came to a screeching halt. And families were forced to be together as parents were home with their children. So if your child had any kind of deficit, even small, 
it became glaringly obvious over the, call it nearly 18 months, and it's, I believe, that we had many more people seeking help than would have sought help if we had not had a pandemic because parents were going to work. Kids were at school. They were participating in extracurricular activities. People come and go. They pass, you know, maybe they had dinner together, but they're passing each other so much, even as a family unit. And during the pandemic, it forced everybody together. And family said, wait, you know, parents were like, wait, why Why is this not work getting done? Or, you know, why are you in your room under the covers living on TikTok? You know, and and I don't see you for days on end. And now you're not even eating. And all of these things came to light. And I wonder if perhaps somebody who had even just a little anxiety or maybe, you know, struggled you know, just maybe even in a quote-unquote normal adolescent way, I wonder if during the pandemic it became so exasperated that that it that it you know became much more than a normal normal adolescent anxiety, and that social piece became twisted. And we hear so much from clients that call us now. Before the pandemic, they'll say. Before the pandemic, they were so social. They were so gregarious. They were playing this sport and that sport. They did everything. They were they were so happy. They were, you know, going on and on describing their child. And now we're hearing, you know, then we're hearing now, post-pandemic, they're none of those things. It's like their child is a different person and they can't seem to to come out of that. And I think that's a struggle, right, if for your school to provide. How do you – and to be fair, I think the schools, quite frankly, you know, they, they're they struggling to figure it out themselves in, in all honesty, in their defense, if I have to say. I think they're struggling to figure out how to help our kids today. No doubt. No doubt. For sure. And, and the, the struggle has gotten harder Mm. But that is, you know, definitely not a reason for parents to not still expect absolutely that their child get their needs met. We all agree that the the struggle has been unparalleled, mm-hmm. something clearly we haven't in our lifetime ever seen. That does not negate correct, yes. right? The need for children's needs being met. And and maybe this is a time when we can come together a little bit more and, and think a little bit more creatively and be more open to how we can service our, our kids. But, you know, listen, they're our future. We can't lose them. And we want to make sure that they are getting the interventions that they need so that they can go on and, and, and be our future. And w- without Without students getting the services that they need, the type of programming that they need, we're really going to hold them back. So, Jody, and the pandemic held yeah. them back anyway. And it, right, exactly. You know. So there's a lot to climb climb back from. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So if you could have some kind of superpower, what would be your hope for the clients that you work with and their families? I love that question, and I think. 
if anyone in my practice is listening to this podcast right now, Tracy, they're chuckling because whenever I speak to a student, I always close my interview with a student asking them, what, what is your superpower? And I they'll say it. to me, you mean if I could like fly? Or, and, I, and I say, no, what is your superpower? And they're, you know, I go, oh, like they really want to think about it. I said, because everybody has one. For sure. So tell me what your superpower is. I typically close my interviews. So I'm for anyone from my practice or who knows me well or client perhaps who has spoken with me. And I probably didn't know that. You didn't know that. And so you may be, they may be chuckling. But if I had a superpower, you know, it's sort of a simplistic answer, Tracy, but it's resources. We need more resources for all of our families. We do a significant amount of pro bono work in our firm, and we work with some families who are fortunate to have resources. And what I find is that there's not enough educational mental health, access to mental health, access to educational resources across the board for everybody. And if I had a magic wand, I would level that playing field so that we could help so many more people and so many more people could access what they need, you know. I'm sure, so. you know what, I'm pretty sure that the the school administrators would say the same thing. Often, I think they wish they had the resources so that they could. Again, I'm not usually on speaking mm. on this side of the table, no. but I'm just I'm putting that out there because I do have so much respect for the educators out there and they have been doing extraordinary work under oh, absolutely. you know, under extraordinary circumstances. But and even resources across the board, right? Like access to mental health. Access to know. mental health and really what I want to see is and I think we are starting to see it, especially when um uh, we see our celebrities admitting to mental health struggles. You know, we had Simone Biles who opted out of the Olympics right. because she had what they called the twisties. And mm -hmm. anybody in gymnastics understands what that means, mm -hmm. that when you're in air and you can't figure out where you are in space, you can't land safely. Right. And she was experiencing that. And she she opted out, not not for herself, but she didn't want her, she didn't want her team to lose in the Olympics. And she really self-sacrificed herself, but had the awareness and the knowledge and the courage to speak out. And then we had uh, Naomi Osaka, the, the tennis player also, mm -hmm. who refused to speak to the press because it causes her too much anxiety. Yeah. And you know what? That's okay. Yeah. And if more, and we have Michael Phelps, Michael who, Phelps, yeah. you know, has been really great at really bringing this to the forefront that, you know, getting therapy is is a good, a good thing. thing. <laughs> is a good thing. So, I I would like you know more acceptance of this, and not and and let's get rid of any shame attached to this because that is the the most defeating thing involved in this whole thing, along with the resources, more resources, less shame, and let's help kids. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Oh, that's. Why you and I do what we do. It is why we That's do what we goal, do. That's our goal is to help kids and help families, whether that is special education or mental health or substance use. And, you know, we that's 
you know, that's really what we live and breathe. Sure is. Well, Jody, thank you so much for coming today. And I hope you'll come back. Of course. Because we have lots more to talk about. Yes, I know. We could go, I can't believe an hour's over already. <laughs> so, All right. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune into our next episode. And please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. And leave us a review. We love hearing from you.